everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. I hope you're all staying safe. My name is James Rudd. I'm the digital media editor here at Heart. Today, I have a really interesting conversation with Dr. Michelle Kittleson from the Cedar Sinai Heart Center in Los Angeles. Uh, Dr. Kittleson, along with Dr. Mahabali, have written a great review all about remote monitoring in heart failure, current and emerging technologies in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Please do spread the word about the podcast through social media, word of mouth with your colleagues. And if you're feeling really kind, could you leave us a lovely review on iTunes or whichever podcast platform you like. Enjoy the show. What I might do is ask you to introduce yourself for the heart audience, who you are and where do you work? So I'm a Michelle Kittleson. I am a heart failure transplant cardiologist at the Smith Heart Institute at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. And Michelle, it's great to have you on the podcast. And you and a co-author who is called Donya Mahebali, yes. I guess from the same unit, have recently written a really engaging review, which is entitled Remote Monitoring in Heart Failure, Current and Emerging Technologies in the Context of the Pandemic. So a very timely interview, I think, today. Um, what I'm going to do is uh, run through some introductory questions, if that's okay, to bring everybody up to speed. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the rationale, Michelle, for remote monitoring in heart failure? What's the, what's the idea behind it? Sure. So remote monitoring essentially means that you can have a patient at a distant location who can collect and transmit clinical data through a remote interface to a clinician elsewhere, and then the clinician may review the data and respond accordingly. The reason why this has such potential benefit in patients with heart failure is that we know two things. One, patients with heart failure can become unstable, precipitating decompensation and hospitalization. So early warning signs of that would be very useful. And second, we know that titration of guideline-directed medical therapy in heart failure, the ARNI ACE inhibitor, ARB, beta blocker, aldosterone antagonist, we know that aggressive titration of those medications can improve symptoms, reduce hospitalizations, increase survival, but titration requires an assessment of symptoms, blood pressure laboratories. So by being able to use remote monitoring to facilitate aggressive titration could help patients do better. And we're going to talk about three different kinds of remote monitoring. So we're going to look at vital sign monitoring remotely, uh, remote monitoring of lung congestion, and finally, uh, hemodynamic uh, remote monitoring. Uh, I think we'll take those in turns if that's okay, going from the kind of more simple end of things to the more complex end of things. Um, fundamentally, before we start though, before we get into it, is there evidence that these monitoring systems are able to predict deteriorations? I mean, I guess that's the idea, isn't it? That you can, you can intervene if you get adverse signals from your monitoring system to prevent the patient ending up in the emergency room. Yes. So there are two potential, let's say partially realized benefits of remote monitoring heart failure. There is the potential that if you could predict deterioration via changes in vital signs, lung congestion, and or hemodynamics, you could stave off hospitalization with more aggressive outpatient management. 
And there's a potential benefit that you could overcome therapeutic inertia by using the information obtained from remote monitoring to optimize the guideline-directed medical therapy, thus having longer-term benefit in reduction of heart failure, hospitalization, and mortality. Now, those are the potential partially realized benefits. Um, and though in clinical practice, only few of these techniques have actually been shown to benefit patients thus far. Okay, I guess we're still in the early days, aren't we, of yes. this uh, area of research. But let's start off then by talking about trials of vital signs and, and which vital signs in particular have been, have been studied in clinical trials. So heart rate, blood pressure, weight, and also symptoms have been used in remote monitoring in these trials. And can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the trials that have been done, maybe the most, the largest or the most conclusive or important in your view? I mean, the, your, your review outlines actually many trials. And so I will direct readers to a copy of the review where they can read the details of each of these studies, but maybe give us an overview of remote monitoring of vital signs. Yeah, so there have been a number of trials testing different uh, symptoms and vital signs in patients with heart failure, support, beat HF, tele-HF. None of those actually found positive outcomes, but one Tim HF2 did actually show, it was the only positive trial of remote monitoring of vital signs and heart failure. It showed, in fact, that use of remote monitoring led to a reduction in unplanned cardiovascular hospitalization and all-cause mortality. So the question is why? What was so amazing about Tim HF that it actually led to benefit? They didn't do much differently. They looked at EKG parameters, blood pressure, weight, but the one difference in TIMHF was patient participation. 97% of patients were 75% compliant with daily data transfer. This was not true of the other studies. They showed no difference in the uptitration of guideline-directed medical therapy, readmissions, mortality, but adherence was an issue. In telehf, 14% of patients in the telemonitoring group never used it. And by the end of six months, only 55% were still participating. So it makes sense if patients don't use the device, if the information is not available, then the information cannot be helpful in change management. And were these using the same device or was it uh, like a web portal where the patients would upload their heart rate and blood pressure and then uh, an algorithm or, or clinicians would decide? How, how was the data gathered? Yeah, exactly. There were different platforms between the different trials uh, and, and remote monitoring was used in all of them. And there were prompts to patients and, and some trials, there were phone calls. But again, I think the key is implementation and finding out the best way to promote adherence for a successful outcome. And let's move on to the second category of remote monitoring that you talk about in the review. And that is the detection of lung congestion. Uh, using, well, impedance, I think, is the way that you talk about. Um, can you talk about that as a concept, how it works, maybe, and whether there's any trial data uh, to support its use? 
Yes, absolutely. So thoracic impedance is theoretically advantageous. It makes sense physiologically and uses the implantable electronic device, the defibrillator pacemaker a patient already has in place to make the measurement. So it relies on the principle that electricity travels better through fluid than through bone, tissue, or air, so thus less resistance or impedance as measured in patients with lung congestion. And the nice thing about these cardiac implantable electronic devices is that they can measure across the generator in the chest wall to the electrical leads in the heart. So theoretically, it sounds fantastic. Two problems. One, it's actually not very accurate. In some studies, only 30% sensitive for clinically adjudicated lung congestion. And this might explain why when clinicians receive the automated fluid status alert notifications based on changes in thoracic impedance, these alerts trigger an automatic 50% increase in diuretic dosage, but result in no difference in heart failure, hospitalization, or death. In fact, there were unintended consequences when patients and physicians had access to these audible alerts indicating reduced thoracic impedance. There was increase in clinic visits, increase in heart failure hospitalizations, but actually no difference in the symptoms or signs of heart failure, suggesting that the extra medical visits were triggered by the alerts, not actually triggered by decompensation. So it's a learning curve. Okay, so I guess if the if the alert system is not particularly sensitive to the <laughs> the thing it's trying to pick up, then that's it's not going to work well, and you're going to end up uh, with the results that you suggest. And what about hemodynamics, the most um, should we say invasive, perhaps, of these monitoring techniques to measure things like left atrial pressure, pulmonary artery pressure? Can you tell us a little bit about that option? Well, so let's, it's nice we can end on a high note as we're talking about the multiple unexciting results of remote monitoring. Now we can, we can talk about something with a positive, optimistic result. So the Champion HF trial has been a landmark trial for remote monitoring and heart failure patients. Regardless of ejection fraction, patients randomized to the pulmonary artery sensor, which is implanted via a right heart catheterization type technique. So randomized to the pulmonary artery sensor monitor had a reduction in heart failure hospitalizations over, over the subsequent 15 months. This benefit has also been shown in a real world setting of clinicians implanting this device in their patients. And there's two things I think that uh, three, let's say three reasons why the pulmonary artery sensor monitor has actually been beneficial for heart failure patients. Number one, it's accurate. We all know that an increase in pulmonary artery pressures, particularly the PA diastolic pressure, is related to the left ventricular and diastolic pressure, filling pressures, congestion, and decompensation. So the measurement itself is accurate. Second, Transmission is relatively straightforward. And in one study, there was 76% adherence to transmission, suggesting that uptake is very easy for patients and also patients buy into the importance of it. And the another part of the success is that if you look at the active monitoring group in Champion HF, they had greater 
targeted intensification of diuretics and vasodilator therapy, suggesting that these measurements are an antidote to the therapeutic inertia that uh, is a barrier to effective implementation. And can you tell me a little bit about the device itself or the implantation technique? You said it's done during a right heart cath procedure. How is it attached or placed within the pulmonary artery? How does it stay there? So the device itself is very small. It's about the size of a dime or I I guess a a tiny little coin for those of us who don't live in the U.S. And it's implanted via a right heart catheterization technique. So it's percutaneous and uh, can be done as a either not outpatient procedure, generally the patients are observed uh, either the same day or overnight. So generally a very straightforward procedure uh, for patients. And you know what? My sense is that that's part of the buy-in. You know, for a patient, to give a patient a scale and a blood pressure cuff and say, do this every day, transmit your data. They'll say, but I could do that anyway. How is this fancy going to help me or am I really going to do it? But if you actually put a patient through a invasive procedure procedure to help them feel better and stay out of the hospital, I think there's more buy-in and more credibility, which may be part of the increased adherence. And it doesn't have a lead or a battery, is that right? That's right. It's fully self-contained. That's amazing. Amazing. And it's FDA approved now for for certain high-risk patients with, uh, with heart failure? That's exactly right. It's approved for patients with heart failure, regardless of ejection fraction, to uh, uh, reduce heart failure hospitalizations. Okay. And how widespread, what's your sense, uh, Michelle, of how widespread this is, let's say, within the U.S. in your experience? You know, I, I think as with any new technology, some there's always... Um, inertia, as I mentioned, in, with the uptake. But I think within the heart failure community, it's become an extraordinary benefit for those patients with recurrent heart failure hospitalizations to reduce heart failure hospitalizations. The other specialized niche where we found it very helpful is for patients who are on the heart transplant waiting list who might okay. have borderline or prohibitive pulmonary artery pressures. You know, if you have prohibitive pulmonary artery hypertension, that can lead to right heart failure post-transplant, and that's considered a contraindication. Putting a patient through a right heart catheterization every three to six months to assess those pressures, number one, is invasive, involves risk, and number two is inconvenient, and number three only gives you a snapshot on certain intervals. Having a device in place to continually monitor those pressures is a real boon for heart transplant candidates to allow better optimization to preserve transplant candidacy. Perfect. And how about multi-parameter monitoring when... For example, you fit together multiple of these measurements um, into an algorithm which perhaps suggests change to medication. Has that been tested, the multi-approach, multi-parameter approach in trials? Yeah, you know, it is a work in progress. Uh, We know that lots of information can be gleaned from these devices, uh, thoracic impedance, heart rate variability, activity, atrial arrhythmias, respiratory rate, heart sounds, relative tidal volumes. So combinations of these parameters 
have been tested through, you know, everyone loves machine learning. It's like the new favorite phrase in the world, but using these machine learning algorithms, can these parameters actually predict heart failure hospitalizations? And in fact, a number of these combinations can with sensitivity, 60 to 70%, specificity, 80 to 90%. So they can be quite powerful techniques. There are no completed randomized trials at the time, but there is a study that will evaluate the impact of remote monitoring using the heart logic feature of implanted CRTD or ICD devices on heart failure, hospitalization, and mortality. Okay, perfect. What do you think we should do, uh, Michelle, to, to improve patient uptake in this area? You said that if you give the patients perhaps the most basic model of some weighing scales, uh, maybe a pulse oximeter, heart rate monitor, that the uptake is not particularly good, even within a clinical trial setting. Um, and on the other hand, you've got a, a permanently implanted pulmonary artery device, which clearly is, is going to be there the whole time. And uh, the patient has to do, I guess, very little uh, in order to get that data read. Where, what can we do in between those uh, those two extremes? How can we improve patient uptake? Is it about education of the patient? Is it something else? So I think there's a number of areas. You know, I like to say great science doesn't save lives. It's the correct equation is great science plus effective implementation equals lives saved. So we might have the science, how do we improve the implementation? So exactly as you said, one part is patient uptake. You have to make it easy to acquire and transmit information but more importantly, you have to convince the patient it's important to do so. And I think the other part of it is clinician uptake. You know, you have to pay attention to the information received. The information uh, received has to have an appropriate algorithm that's effective to improve outcomes. Okay. So, yeah, we've all heard of things like alert fatigue in the electronic healthcare record. Yeah, you need to you need to be very cautious about that, don't you? About you know patients getting buzzed every day, clinicians getting buzzed every day with a new alert, up titrate, down titrate. Um, I can see that. Yeah, it could be a minefield unless this is done in a really uh, you know well thought out way. Um, let's talk about uh, in the last couple of minutes the main ongoing trials of remote monitoring in heart failure. I think you mentioned one just now, uh, one linked to ICDs and CRTDs. Um, what was the name of that trial and are there any other ones that you're aware of that you think the audience might like to keep an eye out in the next couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. So the two trials I'm most excited about First is Manage HF, which is the impact of the remote monitoring multi-parameter platform using uh, S1 and S3 heart sounds, nighttime heart rate, thoracic impedance, uh, respiration from this feature of CRT and ICD devices, looking at the impact on heart failure, hospitalization, and mortality, target enrollment 2700 projected completion date January 2025 so a few more years for that one the other one that i'm very excited about is guide hf which is a prospective trial of the pulmonary artery sensor to determine if the benefit extends to less sick new york heart association class 2 patients and more sick new york heart association class 4 patients as well as those who have been hospitalized within the last year so i think those two trials will really give us a better sense of how these technologies can be implemented into clinical practice. And in parallel with the above, uh, which has been really educational for me, 
can we talk about the impact that uh, that COVID has had on all this? Um, I guess it's my own guess would be that it's brought this into sharp focus for you guys. You haven't been able to touch base with your patients as often as you'd like uh, in the flesh, you know, in person, face to face. Where do you see the legacy of COVID? Should we say once things are once people are vaccinated and we get back towards normal, do you think virtual visits are going to be here to stay? I hope so. I think there are very few silver linings of the pandemic. In fact, I can only identify one. And the only one I can identify is the rise of virtual visits. You know, living in a city like Los Angeles, it is very common that it takes a patient longer to drive to and from the appointment than they ever spend in the exam room with me. And that's not even taking into account the parking and the checking in and the process of it all. It is so wonderful to be able to touch base with patients remotely every few weeks so I can aggressively uptitrate that guideline-directed medical therapy and not feel so bad that I'm making them go through traffic on the 405 freeway to get to me. So this is all wonderful. <laughs> I, think, I think the virtual visits I am hopeful are here to stay. And so the advantages are clear. Patients with limited mobility or transportation can still receive care. They can also have a multidisciplinary approach, the pharmacist, the social worker, the nutritionist can be more easily coordinated. And then caregivers can be present and educated regarding the treatment plan. So these are all the wonderful boons of virtual visits. There, of course, are disadvantages. There's a catch. There's always a catch. And here, you know, if one has limited access to the internet or the devices that are used, that can be challenging. If patients have visual auditory cognitive impairments, that can be challenged and they can't communicate as well on a virtual platform. And finally, it's never a substitute for the in-person visit, meaning if someone is at high risk of decompensation, if there are warning signs that come through on the virtual visit, it's important to then set up a face-to-face -face visit that may be necessary for further closer monitoring. Brilliant. Well, I think uh, we're going to finish there, Dr. Kittleson, if that's okay with you. Um, it's been great to talk to you, and I will make this review free for a couple of weeks after the podcast is released, if it's not already. And I encourage everybody to go and read the article in full. There's some great figures as well, uh, illustrations of the various areas where remote monitoring can really hopefully impact uh, heart failure in the future. And I want to thank you very much for your time. Great. Thank you so much. It's been so fun. Music.